Well, please follow along with me, if you would, as I read 1 Samuel 29 and verses 1 through 11. This is the most important thing we're going to do in our worship service together, to look at God's word in faith. And it matters that we're doing this together today. It matters that we are not alone as we have been perhaps the rest of the week looking at God's word and wondering. Let's wonder together this morning because I have some questions about this passage. The Lord is faithful. Follow along with me as I read, please. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him. To this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to this battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in their dances, Saul has struck down their thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me that, to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with your ser the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as has been the pattern in these past couple chapters, we're left with a cliffhanger yet again in chapter 29. If you look again at verse 11, as David set off to go back to Ziklag, where he belongs in his own eyes and in Achish's eyes, you see the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Do you remember who was camping at Jezreel? It was Israel. Right? Back to verse 1, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So it was seemingly at least close to the moment that the march began that Achish said, you're not coming with me. This is the end of the road, David. Head back home in peace so that we don't upset anyone else. 
well, the last two chapters that we looked at, chapter 27 and 28, and now in 29, and truly on to the end of this book, is what scholars refer to as the ascension narrative. And ascension, of course, means to go up, right? And it's fascinating that in the ascension narrative, we see both David and, unsurprisingly, Saul himself going down in spiritual kind of ways. If you'll remember, David defected over to the Philistines when he had convinced himself that if he stays in Israel, Saul will definitely kill him. We saw that in chapter 27. Then in chapter 28, we saw Saul saying, I need to know what I need to do about these Philistines that are getting ready to attack. I've prayed. I've talked to the priests. I've waited for a prophet. I've used the Urim and the Thurim. God isn't saying anything. What can I do but go to a witch in Endor and practice necromancy and bring up the ghost of Samuel himself to talk to me? Do you remember that a couple weeks ago? Crazy story. Certainly not one of those, now you go and do likewise kind of passages, right? Saul has never been a very good example for us, but certainly towards the end in this ascension narrative, he descends to the depths of hell, so to speak, to express what kind of king he is. And what kind of king is he? 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 5, when Israel asked Samuel for a king, they said this, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the, what church? Nations. Saul, of course, fulfills that description. But ironically, David, the one who was chosen by God, remember the one we call the man after God's own heart, which I'll say again to be very clear with this, we've misunderstood that phrase. David was not chosen because of his chasing after the heart of God. He was chosen because in God's heart, he said, David's the one I want. That was it. And that's important for us, not only in regards to how God chooses people in the Old Testament, but how he chooses us today. Why are you here when someone else isn't here? Why is it that on your heart this morning you said, I'm going to go worship the Lord? Whereas someone else would say, that's the last thing I want to do. What makes you so special? It's not that you're smarter than anyone, right? Paul's very clear about that in Galatians, you know, in, in, in the whole of his letters in the New Testament. He makes it very clear. It is never by anything of our own doing. It is by grace alone we are saved. And so when it comes to God's choosing, let me emphasize to you again this morning that God chooses according to his choosing. And how does he choose us? Or how does he choose others and not a person that we might expect to be chosen? He chooses because he chooses according to his heart, according to his will. We don't get to see little golden halos floating around the people whom God will choose to save. We must respond in faith. We, we do not believe that the Bible says that, that we simply just lay back and let God do what he's going to do. No, God invites us into this process. Not that we're part of the choosing, but we are the vessels by which those who are chosen for God will hear the gospel. So church, preach the gospel to your non-believing friends family members, co-workers. That was a rabbit trail that was not in the notes. Saul is a king like the nations, but David is now a king amongst the nations. 
He doesn't even live in Israel right now. He is a Philistine pirate or mercenary. He's been telling Achish that he's been going around and raiding different tribes of Judah, as he said in chapter 27, when in fact he was just raiding other tribes, other peoples that weren't the Philistines or Israel. So he's been deceiving Achish in this way, and Achish is falling for it 100%. He's a king like the nations after all himself, isn't he? Ironically, David is in the same way following this pattern of deceit and self-interest. It's sad. It's especially sad because he was doing so well, wasn't he? Now, we know how David's going to end up, and we know this isn't even going to be the worst thing that David does, right? It gets far worse in 2 Samuel. It's important for us to, in one sense, forget the way this is going to end up and sit in this passage with David. And I, I want us to get to that point as we walk through this passage together, to sit with David, to see what his, as we talked about with chapter 27, best laid plans have brought him. We sat with Saul in his hopelessness and his grasping to hear from God, but his unwillingness to repent and confess. The back and forth of these chapters, and really the whole story since David appeared in 1 Samuel, shows us we are meant to be contrasting these two. And yet, ironically, now, towards the end, we see this Ugly similarity. David will be the king. We know that because we've read the rest of the story. But we're meant to know that here in chapter 29. David is meant to know that here in chapter 29 and where he is in his life, not because he has a great plan, but because God does. And because God has said, this is the king I have chosen for my people. But he doesn't believe that. David has been chosen. David will be king despite Saul's tight grip on his own throne and even despite David's wandering doubt. And and church, this is a massive encouragement for us because a lot of us sit in a chapter 29 kind of moment. God doesn't speak in chapter 29. He's only mentioned by name from the Philistine king. David isn't praying. David isn't seeking the Lord. And I know if you're anything like me, which you don't have to be a whole lot like me, to understand the feeling of being in a season where you're just not compelled to pray. Where it is easier for you to rely on your own plans, to drown yourself in your hopelessness if you're more like Saul in this case. And to see your hopelessness and see your own plans crumble because of the rejection of the world around you. And that's our title this morning. The rejected by the world, but directed by the Lord. This is where David finds himself. So let's look at this chapter in two sections. And we'll think about how David's rejection by the world sheds light on the direction of the Lord. First section, as this is in your bulletin, is the first five verses. David is found out by the Philistines. And then verses 6 through 11, David is thrown out by the Philistines. So we need to remember what was said in the beginning of this chapter. The Philistines have been amassing a serious attack against Israel. This is kind of the Philistines saying, we're done with this little puny tribe that has been a thorn in our side for generations. We are way bigger than them. We're going to stop these kind of marauding attacks, and we're just going to wipe them out. We're going to gather all of our forces. All five of the lords of the Philistines are working together on this. And so Israel has likewise gathered to respond. 
But we know that Israel doesn't have a whole lot of hope right now. And again, from chapter 28, Samuel, who was not happy about coming back from the grave, told Saul, hey, listen, the only new information I'm going to give you is that tomorrow you're going to die. Tomorrow Israel is going to be given in the hand of the Philistines. And David will be king, as I told you before. This is a hopeless moment for the nation Israel, and they don't have their champion of 1 Samuel 17. David lived among the Philistines. He was doing this pirate-like mercenary work, all under the guise of having defected and deserted Israel with complete loyalty to King Achish of the Philistines. And because of that, Achish has utter faith in David. Did you hear that when we read the passage? He loves David. And because he has utter faith in David, this should make us think that Achish is an utter fool. I mean, David was the champion of Israel. He had killed thousands of Philistines, according to the song. And yet, Achish welcomes him as though he was the most loyal of his servants. Look again at verse 3. When asked by the Philistines, what are these Hebrews doing? They're on the other side of the battle. Why are they with us? Achish says, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? He he gives this pedigree of David here, this this status, as, as one who was serving Saul, who is the king of Israel, to emphasize what a great contrast, what a great conversion David has experienced. He's been born again into a Philistine life. Achish continues, he's been with me now for days and years. And you're like, okay, Achish, it's been a year and four months. He's obviously exaggerating. But he says, since David deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. You might remember that Saul, in chasing David, mentions to one of his informants that David is very crafty, very clever. Make sure you know exactly where he is because he could pull the wool over your eyes very quickly. Achish is, I mean, the wool is down to his toes. He doesn't get it at all. He's lost in the, and enamored with what David has done for him. Because remember, all these raids that David's been doing, he's been giving a portion back to Achish. He's been paying tribute to his Lord, as it were. But what's really going on is a mystery to us. For David, it was certainly easier to continue with his plan, whatever it was, to hide out among the Philistines, because the only Philistine he had to worry about was the foolish Achish. Remember earlier, David had come to Achish not on his own will, but he was captured by the Philistines. They brought him to Achish, and David pretended to be crazy, started foaming at the mouth and tearing his clothes and being ridiculous, and Achish bought it. Achish is buying yet another ruse of David in this chapter too. But all he has to do is keep Achish fooled, and his his plan can keep on going. This, This is one of those plans where he's like, I've got steps one, two, and three of the plan, and four through ten are going to, they'll show themselves eventually. This is his scheme. We'll see how long we can keep this up. And when something else happens, we'll, we'll just go from there. Isn't that, isn't that always encouraging when somebody says, hey, here's the plan so far, and then when we get to this point, we'll figure it out? I mean, especially wives, you don't like this, right? When your husbands are like, we'll just, we'll figure it out from there. No, give me the rest of the plan. Some husbands are like that too. I get it. It's a personality thing. 
But David doesn't have 4 through 10. He has 1 through 3. His plan might have been to fool Achish until Saul died or something else happened so that he could return to Israel. I'm sure he hadn't forgotten what Samuel said, that he was going to be the king. So David makes promises to Achish to be his bodyguard. He promised that he had deserted his people and he'd be a Philistine pirate for Achish's financial gain. That was his scheme in steps one through three. But the Lord is not going to let this scheme go on forever. By his grace, you know, in one sense it kind of depends. Like, what's long for a year and four months? Is it long to be doubting and wandering for that long? That's kind of a long time to be doubting and wandering. You know, I would hope that in my own life, if I doubt and wander, it wouldn't last longer than a couple minutes, even though I recognize sometimes it lasts for days or possibly weeks or big seasons where I'm going, Lord, I just don't know what to do right now, but my sin is restraining me from reaching out to you. Again, this is one of the weird things that's going on. Saul is actively trying in 20, chapter 28 to hear from God, even, even going to extreme and unrighteous means to do so. But in chapter 27 and chapter 29, David isn't even trying, it seems. And it's important for us to get that. And I don't think that we should take Bible characters and just simply drag them through the mud so that we just feel better about ourselves. But these stories are here to remind us Just as James says about Elijah, Elijah was a man like us. King David, who killed 10,000 Philistines, is a man, is a person like you and like me. He's frail, he's weak, and sometimes he can be foolish. Well, Achish is completely fooled by David's plan thus far. Again, whatever it is, we don't know. But the other Philistines are not convinced. They're way smarter than Achish. They remember the song because it's been on the radio for over a decade now. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I don't know exactly how it goes, but they knew the song. Like, imagine the most annoying song that you've ever heard, right? It's Christmas time, so Mariah Carey and the like. That's what the Philistines are hearing. Saul has struck down his thousands, David has his ten thousands. We get it, okay, fine. He killed Goliath and cut his head off. We admit it. But they remember this. And they're not going to be fooled the way Achish was. Again, Achish was profiting from David's deceit. These other Philistines are kind of objectively able to act wisely in this circumstance and go, "Uh uh-uh, we're not having this guy fight among us. Learn, learn all our secrets. They say in verse 4, he shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, doesn't it make sense that David's been tricking you all this time so we could learn all your secrets, get within your ranks, and then as soon as the battle hits, go for Israel and change the flag and send all of his men against the Philistines. They're like, David is clever. He could totally do something like that. And then they give the reason in verse 4. How could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? They're talking about Saul here. Would it not be with the heads of men here? And again, with the heads particularly, because what did he do to Goliath? They remember. They're not going to fall for it. So the Philistine commanders see what Achish doesn't see or doesn't want to see. It brings a question, though. Does David intend to get back into Saul's favor? We don't know. He doesn't tell us here. The narrator doesn't give us any other details about David's plan, except that it didn't work out. And that in this moment, he's found himself really stuck. 
because he should not go and battle against Israel. But if he refuses prior to this you know, dismissal, if he were to have refused, he would have shown that his loyalties were not truly with Achish. So when the Philistines come in and they essentially say no to David, they're actually bailing David out of the situation. We'll talk about more than that in a second. I doubt, though, that David wants to get back in Saul's favor. Remember, again, his last thing he said about Saul was, Saul's going to kill me. That's what's going to happen. I can't be anywhere near that guy. It's over. He was convinced that as long as Saul was alive, he wouldn't be safe, which is probably right. But we really don't have a clear view into David's scheme here. It's worked well enough for him to hide whatever his intentions were behind the pile of treasure he's passed to Achish. But that's all at risk until the Philistines come and bail him out. Of course, unintentionally. Of course, none of the Philistines are going there going, hey, we've really put David in a tough situation here. Let's give him a break. <laughs> They're not, they don't care. They don't care about David. They just don't want him to mess up their plans. David clearly wanted to build on Achish's trust or take advantage of it in some way in this battle that was coming up. But he's not going to get the chance. Whatever his plan was, it wasn't good. And the Lord who directs all things, even in the rejection of the world, is able to direct his plan according to his will. So what do you do when you start to see that your bad idea is showing itself for what it really is? Do you remember the poem that we read a couple weeks ago? The, um, the best laid schemes of mice and men. Go, what was the word? It was go aft agly, often go awry. And I think that the poet, when he says often, he means almost always. Our best laid schemes will come to ruin. What do you do when you start to see that happening? When you start to see the floor crumbling out from under your feet? Maybe it's something that you decided a while earlier and it's gone on long enough now that you think maybe you're going to get away with it. Maybe it's even knowing that you shouldn't have done it, but it has worked because that's where David is. When did it start to unravel? Or maybe is there something in your life right now that's unraveling? So David is found out by the Philistines. Things are unraveling. He's been rejected by the Philistines. Now let's see how he's been thrown out by the Philistines. The fact is that David probably deserves to deal with his decisions, wouldn't you say? He's brought himself to this position. In one sense, we almost want to see an alternate telling where David has to make a decision standing on the battle lines. You're going to fight Israel? Is that really what you're going to do? You're going to risk losing everything you've built up in the land of the Philistines? But the good news is you won't have to. Can you see how this is God's mercy to David? In his strange working out of his will, he didn't simply light a burning bush in front of him and speak to him about all his terrible decisions, but he's working through sinful, fallen, Philistine military plans to bring David to a place where he has a way out of his terrible scheme. If not for this, David would have either had to betray Achish and face punishment or actually take up arms against his own people. And that would be not only to... David knows this. When you fight against God's people, who are you really fighting against, church? God. I mean, as, as far off as David might be theologically, there's no way he's forgotten that. He knows that he is in a bind right now. But does he actually see God's mercy in this? 
When Achish comes to him, if you look down um, in chapter 29 again, in verse 6, Achish calls to him. He says, look, as the Lord lives, which is ironic because he doesn't follow the Lord. He doesn't worship the Lord. He says, you've been honest. It seems right that you should go out with me to the battle. But nevertheless, they don't approve of you, so go back. Then look at verse 8. David should write a psalm here, right? The Lord helps me in my foolishness. He bails me out of the knots I've tied myself in. No, he doesn't say that. He says, but what have I done to Achish? Why are you getting rid of me at this point? What, what evidence is there whatsoever? <laughs> and to the other Philistines, there's plenty of evidence. Let me tell you all about the Philistine heads you've cut off, right? I mean, it's, it's obvious. But to David, it, honestly, I don't know what to do with this verse. Why doesn't David get it? Why don't I get it sometimes? Why don't I see the moments where my plans that probably weren't the best plans in the first place start to crumble? Why don't I see that those plans crumbling is part of God's sovereign direction to bail me out of bad ideas? I don't know. You probably don't have bad ideas. (laughs) So first of all, we wonder why David doesn't just say, well, shucks, Achish. I hope it all works out well for you. I'll just head back to Ziklag. You let me know how it goes. We'll see you later. That would have made a lot of sense. Now, commentators point out that there's some ambiguity in David's words. If you look down again at verse 8, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from this day that I entered your service until now? So he's, he's calling himself Achish's servant. He's talking about the service he's doing as service to Achish. But then he says that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king. Commentators point to this last phrase and they go, well, who is David really talking about when he says, my Lord, the king? Is he talking about Achish? Is he talking about Saul? Is he talking about God? Is there a possibility that it could mean any one of those? It's clear that Achish thinks that David's talking about Achish in this, right? But this could be part of what David's trying to do. He could be saying, oh, but I really want to go serve my Lord, the king, so why not let me go do that? He's done something like this earlier when Achish said in the first place at the end of chapter 27, he said, you're going to go out with me against Israel. And David says, very well, you, can, you will see what your servant can do. It's kind of a big cliffhanger. What does he mean? What can his servant do? I like to just kind of say, if commentators say it, then... I'll go with it, but I just, I don't think, I think that David has launched into this season of life based on a lie. Again, chapter 27, there's nothing good for me now, nothing better than for me to leave Israel and go to the land of the Philistines. That's just simply not true. That can't be true. God doesn't call his people to leave his people and join those who are not his people, particularly those people who were meant to be wiped out in the first place, according to God's judgment. And if David is basing his plan off of a lie, how long is it really going to last? Well, he might answer, well, it lasted a year and four months, so pretty good if you ask me, right? No, not good enough. Because I think at this moment, David is going, I I had it so good, it was working, and, and you won't let me keep going in this direction that I want to go. But, but then again, he also doesn't realize that the Lord is bailing him out, and I don't want to spoil chapter 30, but there's a really important reason why he has to go back to Ziklag. And you can read that this week. 
It's a really important reason. And I'm not going to tell you because it'll be a good cliffhanger. And these, these chapters are all about cliffhangers, so make another one. The Lord is pulling David back into his plan, and when he does that with us too, it hurts, doesn't it? When God has to sort of grab the reins, if you pretend to be a horse right now, and pull us over to where we belong, it's not an easy transition. It's not like, oh, okay, cool, I'll just go over here. What do we do? We kick, we fight, we scream, we don't like it. I think that's what David's doing right now. I think David is bucking against what God is clearly trying to do. We can look at it 3,000 years later on and we can say, David, here's what you've done. You've gotten yourself into a dilemma. You're only hearing from a king like the nations. You're weighing your situation by his words and you're not listening to the king of heaven and weighing your situation by his word. You're not even seeming to seek his word in this season. Maybe he is, but we don't know. We do know in the next chapter, the thing that happens that makes David, I think, really glad he came home causes him to seek the Lord at that point. It doesn't seem like he's doing that right now. Instead of listening to the king of heaven, he's listening to a king of a nation. Instead of weighing his situation by the words of the king of heaven, He's weighing a situation by the words of an earthly king. So now we come to a place where we can really sit with David in this rejection. Because in this rejection, we see something very similar to Saul and his hopelessness. Again, if you think about this like a TV show, and the episodes are going back and forth between Saul and David, you could almost merge chapter 28 and 29 together with a split screen of Saul sitting at the table eating the witch's dinner, in utter hopelessness, not confessing to the Lord. And then you could do on the other side of the split screen, you could have David sitting here getting ready to go to Ziklag with the same expression on his face. Hopelessness and rejection. The irony of these opposites is crazy because Saul has been rejected by the Lord. That's a terrible place to be. David has been rejected by the world. That's a good place to be. And yet both of them are solemn, hopeless, and uncertain. So let's sit there with David and Saul for a moment. Maybe you don't feel rejected or hopeless right now, but I bet you, and maybe even just because of today's sermon, you might experience it this week, or it might be next month, or it might be several years from now. Are you going to be ready for these moments? where you might have laid your best plans and schemes according to worldly principles and the world is going to reject you in all of that? Are you ready for the moment where you could say, you know, I really should have had that conversation with that guy. And now I can't. And now it's too late. Now it's so far removed from that situation that, that started an argument, whatever it might be. I'm building a hypothetical situation here. But those moments of regret and rejection and hopelessness are going to come. Are you ready for them? Are you ready to tell yourself, against your own will, we need to seek the Lord in this? Husbands and wives, close friends, neighbors, coworkers, fellow believers, church this morning, you need to commit to each other, to be with each other in the moment of rejection and hopelessness and say, let us seek the Lord. 
Let us look to him who is directing all of these things to his purposes. Because even King David, the man after God's own heart, faced this rejection and hopelessness too. Are you missing God's clear work in your life because you're so focused on the rejection of the world or the way the world isn't working out the way you wanted it to? Maybe something's been taken from you. I don't know. But Christian, you can be confident that the shepherd of your soul will lead you back to still waters. But if you've gotten yourself caught in the mud of your own making, it's going to be painful to get you unstuck. You know, we've had a lot of house projects this past week. And um, I've realized that uh, th- this is a big confession. I can't draw a straight line. I know all of you can, right? Like across a huge piece of drywall, right? I know it's really easy for everybody else, but it's not for me. And I I just, I realized this past week that every time I need to draw a straight line, I I look for something around me that looks straight. Not a good idea, right? And I go, that's straight enough. It doesn't matter if it's totally perfect. And so I needed to cut a piece of drywall, so what did I pick up? Naturally, another piece of drywall. And ideally, and thankfully, it was a piece of drywall that I hadn't cut yet. I hadn't messed with it yet. So it still had that original, perfectly straight line, right? It's, it, it wasn't. It, it's not good enough. And, and honestly, it's very entertaining to watch me do house improvement projects because I look like I'm recreating like a Mr. Bean skit or the Three Stooges or something. When I'm holding up this straight edge of my own finding, of my own making, just in the world around me, and, and trying to hold that up, trying to draw a straight line, and then my foot's up there holding the piece over while I get over to the edge, and, and it's gotten crooked, but maybe I could just make it all the way to the end, and you look at it, it looks like a heartbeat monitor thing instead of a straight line that you're looking for. David's facing the outcome of the pencil falling off the straight edge in his own scheme, using the things of the world to accomplish the things that God has set on his heart. Because I do still think that's clearly on David. David is wanting to do what God wants him to do. I think that he can't forget God's faithfulness. But here he is, he's trying to go about some other means, and he's going to get rejected, he's going to fail, and the drywall will not be straight. It's gang aft agly as the Scotsman said. It's going awry. So what in your life is about to fall apart like a straight line taking a nosedive? Because you're not hanging drywall or just doing a building project. Our biggest problem isn't what the world can tempt us to do. It's how we can convince ourselves that we should go through with it. You know, the, the, the famous thing that we, we love to do is we would say, well, the devil made me do it. I was tempted by this thing nobody's going to go to hell because of what the devil tempted them to do. If we face punishment for our sin, for our failings, for our wanderings away from the straight path laid out by Christ, if we face an eternity of punishment for it, it will only be of our own making. And one brilliant theologian once said, in painting a picture of the experience of hell and judgment that the most overwhelming notion will not be the pain, it will not be the hopelessness, it won't be the fear, it will be the justice of God. That's terrifying. 
Because our little mistakes in wandering away from God and wandering to our own path are not just, well, God had a wonderful plan for you, but you kind of missed it a little bit, and oh, gee, mister. When David is plucked out of this situation, he's not just simply plucked out of a bad idea. He's plucked out of judgment that he deserves for his sin, as are all of us. If we are in Christ, we have not just simply been freed from a not-so-great idea and brought back into a better one. We are freed from an eternity of judgment and punishment. And yet, how quick we are to choose sinful means to meet the sinful schemes of our hearts, despite that judgment. How easy it is to adopt a worldly attitude and make unrighteous Achish our Lord and Master. So maybe that's an important question for you this morning. Have you taken someone or something of the world, maybe just a standard, an expectation, or maybe it is a person, maybe it's a boss or a family member, Have you taken someone or something and made them your Lord and Master the way David made Achish his? What happens when the world rejects us from that then? Beloved, don't underestimate your heart's ability to set aside the Lordship of Jesus Christ in favor of following something that seems like your only option. Remember David's words in chapter 27, there's nothing better for me to do. This is my only hope. It's not true. Don't fall into that lie. Christ is your only option. Christ is the must-have. And for sinners like us, he calls us. He calls to the one who can see his schemes unraveling, but can't see the providential hand of the Father. He calls to the one who is sure they have no next step, though the next step is found in the Savior. He calls to the one who is petrified by guilt and shame and can't see that there is one who sees all of that and yet continues to extend mercy. He calls to you and to me. Church, don't trust in what you can see. Trust in the one who sees. Trust that while the world will reject you, even when you ally yourself with it, there is one who has not rejected you, though you've been his enemy. That's incredible. The world will reject you, even if you are 99.99% with it. The world will still reject you eventually but you've been 100% opposite the will of God before knowing Christ, and yet you have been accepted in that opposition. This is the gospel. This is incredible. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time: that God became man. He became just a helpless little infant to express to us the preciousness of the gift he wants to give us, that we don't deserve whatsoever. Because we have wandered. And David hasn't bailed himself out in chapter 29. God has. And you can't bail yourself out. Don't trust that. Don't trust that for the slightest thing. Don't trust that for the smallest conversation or for the biggest work issue or or, or anything. Trust in Christ's leading you. In the truth, particularly as we look at David and Achish. He is our only option. And in the rejection of the world, God is ever directing all things according to his will. Listen to, this is one of my favorite verses in Acts. In chapter 4, in 27 and 28, the apostles are gathered together, and you can look at it. I heard pages turning. That's awesome. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. 
there the apostles, as they're praying together with the believers, they say, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all sorts of wrong kind of people. They were gathered together against Christ, the anointed one, which we've seen David called in 1 Samuel, and of course he foreshadows Christ in this. But Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, and what were they gathered to do? Verse 28 tells us the opposite of what we would expect. In their rejection, verse 28 says, they were gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Church, if God is able to direct the plotting and scheming of Pontius Pilate, he was a bad dude. Of Herod, he was a lousy guy of the Gentiles who know nothing of God and of the people of Israel who at this point were rejecting their own Messiah, if he is able to work all of those moving pieces together to bring Jesus to a cross where he could pour his wrath out on him and show the rejection of the world on Christ that mirrors the rejection of God towards our sin, if he can do that, can he not direct the misscheming of your heart? The world rejected Jesus, but God directed that rejection in order to redeem us. And so just as he directed, and I mean, wow, when you think about Acts 4 and what he said there and all the moving pieces, what is it for God to say, you know, I'm going to move these Philistines over here and just kind of nudge them and remind them of who David is so that David can get out of this. Against David's will, too, as a matter of fact. He wanted to stay This morning, I would ask you not to lose trust in the Lord's directing power over your life. Be rejected by the world. I'm not saying go out and start waving flags and being obnoxious about it. But be ready to be rejected by the world as you're simply peacefully following Christ. Because in that, you are in good company. Even if it makes you seem a fool, know that in letting go of the things that would gain approval in the eyes of the achishes of this world... Letting go of those things is wisdom before the true king because he directs all things for his purposes. Christ alone is our hope in life and in death. So may we trust in his work at the cross because there he has redeemed us. In his resurrection, he has resurrected us as well to newness of life so that we can walk with him and walk with each other. And he continues that work to lead us on day after day until the day we see him face to face. Don't forget He is right now working in you and through you to that end. You may wonder, as clearly David did, God, what are you doing here? How could you possibly pull me out of this mess? He can possibly. And he not only can possibly, he can overwhelmingly. Because time keeps marching on, more situations come up, more troubles happen, more problems that we bring ourselves into. But the steady march of time and the steady overflow of our mistakes, they can't overwhelm God's sovereign power. I know that is a Sunday school basic kind of elementary understanding, but don't we forget it. Let us not. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that in you we have a sure hope that you are directing 
even through the rejecting, even through the plotting and scheming of the world around us that, that in many ways may seem as though they're gaining traction, as though it may be going well. Lord, our greatest concern isn't even just being rejected by the world. It's, it's what happens to our hearts when we do that and, and where our hearts might direct us. Lord, would you direct our hearts? Would you superintend our thoughts that we might, as Paul said, take every thought captive so that like David, when we sit there and go, there's nothing better for me, we go, no, there's everything better for me in Christ. And I can trust him. Lord, help us to be a people like that. Help us to be a church that stands alongside one another. That, that when we ask each other, how are we doing? We might have the boldness to say, you got five minutes? Because I could use prayer. I could use encouragement from the world. I could use the reminder that God is directing everything, even though I feel rejected. Help us to that end, not only for our good, but for your glory, Father. For Christ himself is worthy. He alone is our hope in life and in death. So may we sing to him now from the place of our hearts that admit our scheming, that admit our wandering, and may we let go of the reins so that you might direct us according to your will. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.